This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello and welcome back to How We Got Here, Episode 3 of Season 2. We're just moving right along here. I'm your host, Rachel DePampa, an investigative reporter with NBC12 in Richmond, Virginia. This week, we are turning back the clock on December 2nd through the 8th. To those whose purpose and design is to blend and amalgamate the white and Negro race, and destroy the integrity of both races. The year 1959. They are integrationists. The issue, desegregation of public schools. Who don't care what happens to the children of Virginia. To those who defend or close their eyes to the livid stench of sadism, sex, immorality, and juvenile pregnancy infesting the mixed schools. And what you're hearing is the governor of Virginia at the time, J. Lindsay Almond, thumbing his nose at the Supreme Court ruling that the Commonwealth can no longer delay desegregation. As governor of this state, I will not yield to that which I know will be wrong and will destroy every rational semblance of public education for thousands of the children of Virginia. This is tough to listen to, but it happened. And people alive today remember when schools were all white or all black. And that was supposed to change with the Supreme Court's unanimous decision in May of 1954 in the case of Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. It's without a doubt one of the most important Supreme Court decisions in the 20th century. It overturned the doctrine of separate but equal that was established by yet another Supreme Court decision in 1896. And it was the culmination of a series of legal cases that the NAACP initiated to move American society to a more inclusive and integrated society. Barbara Batson is the exhibitions coordinator at the Library of Virginia. And as I'm sure you can tell, she grew up in the South. I'm from North Carolina. (laughs) Can't you tell? She's worked in museums and libraries for years. I tell people that I have the best job at the library. I work with a really great collection, and I learn something new every day. And I just can't imagine anything better than that. And we went to talk to her about something called Virginia's Massive Resistance, basically an effort to keep schools segregated well after the Supreme Court's decision 
on Brown versus Board. We found ourselves on this path because of a letter written on December 2nd, 1955. A black man named Robert Leon Bacon wrote to the governor of Virginia describing the hardships of living under segregation. But before we get to Bacon's letter, here's a refresher on Brown v. Board. We call it Brown v. Board of Education Topeka, Kansas, because that's just the way that the Supreme Court actually bundled five cases. And one of those five cases was Dorothy Davis versus the Prince Edward County Board of Education. Which was filed in Virginia in May of 1951. And that all started because Barbara Johns led her fellow students out on strike of their tar paper shack school, and it was a way of forcing Virginia to acknowledge that separate was not equal. And being Virginia, there was a lot of resistance. When that Supreme Court ruling was made, you can hear the resistance in the tone of Virginia's governor in 1954, Thomas B. Stanley. It had been hoped the provisions of our state constitution and previous decisions of the court would be upheld. But the court has come to a different conclusion. We want to thank the Library of Virginia and WRVA Radio for letting us use these recordings, giving you a first-hand listen of what people in Virginia would be hearing on the radio at that time. It is apparent the court recognizes that adjustments to conform with its findings will take time course what happened in Virginia well there are actually two Brown decisions there is the May decision in 1954 where the Supreme Court and it was a unanimous decision said that in fact separate but equal in public education was not constitutional but it was the Supreme Court's next decision that caused problems in the Commonwealth it said that states that had maintained separate public education facilities for whites and, and African Americans, had to move with all deliberate speed. They didn't really define what all deliberate speed meant. So Virginians latched onto that. And by latched, she means, how shall we put it, dug in their heels. The General Assembly met and they came up with proposals and just said the Virginia schools are not going to integrate. Virginia Senator Harry Flood Byrd said, if the southern states organized this massive resistance, the rest of the country would realize that racial integration would not be accepted in the South. They were going to close schools if schools tried to integrate. They were actually going to pay African-Americans to go to school someplace else, out of state. Which, if you really think about it, it's kind of a silly thing to do. And of course, the sad thing happened in Virginia was that the Prince Edward County schools closed for a really long time. Five years, from 1959 to 1964, there was no public school in Prince Edward County. And it only reopened then because of a court order. There were students who were, in fact, denied their education. We, Virginians, have had to apologize for that and make some sort of accommodation for now adults 
who had great difficulty attaining an education in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That apology didn't come until 2003. But as the massive resistance efforts continued in the 1950s, Virginia's political leaders began receiving letter after letter from the public. There are some letters where they're saying, I've never written a government official before, but basically they're saying, you know, this argument for massive resistance and closing schools is ridiculous. Or there are some who say, you know, stay the course, we're with you. And there is this subtext in, in the letters, in a lot of the letters, about fear. Well, it's not a nice way to put it, but about mixing of the races, as it was known then. You know, this is, 1954 is, what, 14 years before Loving v. Virginia, where the Supreme Court says, no reason why interracial couples cannot marry. There are other letters to the governors where parents are writing and saying, you know, we're, you're sacrificing the education of our children for pride and prejudice, and that's not Virginia way. This brings us back to Richmond, Virginia, and Robert Leon Bacon's letter written on December 2nd, 1955. An African-American writing to a white governor about segregation and Jim Crow laws in the Commonwealth. He writes, He is leaving the state because he cannot live here as a person. He cannot walk down Monument Avenue. He can hardly look at a white woman without fear of being attacked or you know, worse lynched. But a white man can come onto 2nd Street, which was sort of the center of Jackson Ward, and nothing's ever done. He can do that without fear. For those of you who don't know, Jackson Ward is often called the Harlem of the South. It is a historically black community. It's a hard letter to read, but it's also, I think, because he's speaking of his personal experience. In a lot of ways, I think that the tone of the letter would resonate with a lot of African-Americans even today, which is a kind of a sad commentary. And there's one line in this letter that stops you in your tracks. Virginia is the home of presidents, but it is not the home of democracy. It is the home of white supremacy. This is 1955, and you read that and sort of think about things that have happened in the recent past. It kind of brings you up short. The legacy of massive resistance lasted for decades in Virginia. There were still segregation cases in the 1970s, almost 20 years after Brown v. Board. But the goal of Robert Leon Bacon's letter on December 2, 1955, and of all the rulings from our nation's highest court, were to achieve equal rights for all Americans. And Barbara Batson, says it best. There's still a lot of work to be done. We hope everyone who celebrates had a great Thanksgiving last week. Often the signal to the end of November and the final barrier to Christmas music on the radio. I think I might have heard some before Thanksgiving, but that's neither here nor there. But if we go back 
400 years, the first Thanksgiving wasn't in November. It was December 4th, 1619, right here in Virginia. That day, 36 men arrived on the shores of the Virginia colony, continued up the James River. It was the King James River back then and ventured onto the land known as Berkeley Hundred, the present-day Berkeley Plantation. Those colonists were led by a man named Captain John Woodleaf. And who better to talk to about the first Thanksgiving than a man with Woodleaf's blood coursing through his veins? I'm a descendant of Captain John Woodleaf. I would say it's 10 or 11 generations. That's right, a direct descendant of Captain John Woodleaf, Graham Woodleaf. I knew there was some relation there uh, as, a, as a child. We've got an organization. Our mission is to let people know about the first Thanksgiving that actually happened in Virginia and not in Plymouth. That first Thanksgiving at Berkeley 100 was a year and 17 days before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts and nearly two years before their meal with Native Americans. But this giving of thanks was no feast. It was religious. Woodleaf and his crew had very specific instructions once they arrived to the colony after a two-and-a-half-month journey across the Atlantic. They were given a list of ten instructions by the Berkeley Company, the group of four gentlemen that met originally. The very first instruction was that once they landed at Berkeley 100, they should give a prayer of thanksgiving for their safe voyage and to do so perpetually and annually to have a prayer of thanksgiving on, those, on that site for, to Almighty God. So when they landed on December the 4th, 1619, that's exactly what they did. They rode ashore, they placed their luggage on the hard ground, listened complete silence and then had a prayer of thanksgiving and gave thanks to Almighty God for their safe voyage. But their trip to the New World was no cakewalk. It was an arduous journey across the Atlantic Ocean. There was a lot of storms. They were homesick. They were claustrophobic. They had vermin infestation. A lot of things going on. Captain John Woodleaf had been to the colony several times before and had even survived the starving time in Jamestown about a decade before. But nonetheless, the captain and his crew aboard the good ship Margaret prevailed, giving thanks and setting the stage for a holiday we continue to celebrate today, but with food, no cranberry sauce. Who added cranberry sauce to the table anyway? Anyone know? Okay, I'm over it. But the history of the land they settled and the plantation that was built there is fascinating. Come on, let's hop down another how we got here rabbit hole. These are always fun. The settlement was destroyed shortly after Woodleaf and his crew settled there. But the plantation that stands today was built in 1726 for the family of Benjamin Harrison IV. That name might sound familiar. His son, Benjamin Harrison V, was born at the home in 1730, and he would go on to sign the Declaration of Independence and serve three terms as Virginia's governor. His son, William Henry Harrison, was born at the plantation in 1773, 
and would become the ninth president of the United States. Even though he died in office a month after his inauguration. Anyway, the Harrison family wasn't done yet. William's grandson, Benjamin, entered the Oval Office in 1889 as the nation's 23rd president. Are you sensing a theme here? I know I am. Come on, guys, you're used to my bad jokes by now. While the nation was divided during the Civil War, the Berkeley Plantation was known as Harrison's Landing and was occupied by General George McClellan's Union Army. And it was there, in 1862, that one of the most recognizable tunes in American history began its solemn call. Major General Daniel Butterfield composed the song, revising an earlier bugle call named Tattoo that had gone out of use by the Civil War. Butterfield's bugler that first played taps was named Olive Wilcox Norton. And it began as a signal to extinguish lights and honor his men at Harrison's Landing following the Seven Days Battles, which we told you about in Season 1. But the tradition of taps continues to this day, often bringing tears when used at military funerals, honoring the men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice. I told you this was a really good sidebar. Okay, back to Thanksgiving. Many schools across the country still teach children that the first Thanksgiving happened in Massachusetts. Even the federal government endorsed that thought all the way up until the JFK presidency. Back in 1962, John J. Wicker, who was a state senator, wrote to President John F. Kennedy that Kennedy's proclamation at the time listed Massachusetts as having Thanksgiving and giving thanks to the nation and so forth. And he wrote and said he was wrong and Virginia was the first. And surprisingly, Wicker got a response. Just nine days later, Kennedy's historian, Arthur Schlesinger, wrote a letter basically saying he was exactly right. Due to unconquerable New England bias on the part of the White House staff, they had missed that, and the error would be corrected in future proclamations. And in his 1963 Thanksgiving proclamation, President Kennedy listed Virginia first, and then Massachusetts after that, and said they would be doing that from that point on. And if the month of November 1963 and JFK rings any bells, you guessed it, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas just 18 days after that revised proclamation. The annual celebration of Thanksgiving at Berkeley Plantation was reborn in 1958, thanks to Virginia Senator John Wicker. The plantation's owners invited members of the Woodley family, and that kicked off the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival, held on the first Sunday in November every year. I am president of the Virginia Thanksgiving Festival and have been for about 10 years. An event that a direct descendant of Captain John Woodleaf helps to coordinate today. It's a special feeling, 
and uh, when I go on the road into Berkeley, it, it comes over me and uh, it just feels real good, to be honest with you. So as you reach for the Thanksgiving leftovers in the fridge, remember the arduous voyage of a few dozen Englishmen who finally arrived to the shores of Virginia, pausing to give thanks for a safe journey. The food thing came later. The United States is seen today as a world superpower, one of the most powerful countries and governments in the globe. But it wasn't always that way. And we have a Virginian to thank for a policy that became a cornerstone of U.S. diplomacy for generations. The fifth president and Westmoreland County native, James Monroe, and his policy that later became known as the Monroe Doctrine. Oh, I can hear the groans now, the memories of U.S. history, maybe 11th grade. And it was on December 2nd, 1823, in his seventh annual message to Congress, that Monroe said European powers were obligated to respect the Western Hemisphere and leave our neighboring countries alone. If there was some sort of colonization or interference by a European power, Monroe said that our newfound nation would see it as a hostile act against the U.S. Much of the Monroe Doctrine came from his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, because Monroe initially supported the idea of a joint U.S. and British resolution to stop countries like Spain from continuing their colonization in Latin America. But Adams convinced Monroe to keep the Redcoats out of it, alleging that the fledgling country was the protector of the West. The policy also mentioned that the U.S. would stay out of European affairs, as well as existing European colonies in the West. Think of toddlers. If you don't mess with us, we won't mess with you. I know a thing or two about toddlers. I have two of them. And negotiating with toddlers is darn near impossible. When Monroe gave the speech to Congress, the country was a minor player on the world stage, meaning his statements were incredibly bold because the military was not what it is now. The Monroe Doctrine was put into practice around the end of the Civil War, when the U.S. government supported Benito Juarez in Mexico, helping to overthrow the French regime of Emperor Maximilian. Totally going from memory on these names. Back to my days in high school. World history, maybe 10th grade, I think. And as the United States emerged as a major world power, the Monroe Doctrine was used to justify all sorts of interventions, especially in Latin America. There was Teddy Roosevelt's big stick policy in Central America and the Caribbean seen as an aggressive interpretation of Monroe's policy. Franklin Roosevelt tried to soften that take on it with his good neighbor policy. And then, during the Cold War, 
JFK used the Monroe Doctrine during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, ordering an air and naval quarantine of Cuba as the Soviets began building missile sites there. In the 1980s, President Reagan used it to justify intervention in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Then, George H.W. Bush in Panama. But things are constantly in flux as world governments change. Should the United States still act as the police of the West? That's a policy question for lawmakers in Washington, D.C. But it was a Virginia man who became president, giving a speech to Congress on December 2, 1823, putting a foreign policy into place that would help solidify the role of the United States in a time of colonization, helping create the foundation for a world superpower today. Move over Paul Revere. <laughs> Step aside, Jack Jewett. I bet you've never heard the story of Susanna Bowling. Don't worry. We're about to tell you. Her midnight ride through central Virginia likely saved the Marquis de Lafayette and the American Revolution. But a local author couldn't let Susanna and her story fade into the oblivion of time. So she researched everything she could and wrote a book on this heroine from Hopewell, who was born on December 5th, 1764. I'm just waiting for Steven Spielberg to give me a call and offer to produce a movie for me. I think I'd say yes. My name is Libby McNamee and I am a writer. I was absolutely blown away and I thought this cannot possibly be true because if it was, it would be in the history books. I got a few resources and realized it was true and the story wasn't out there. So when I started doing this, I really knew very little about the American Revolution, to be honest with you. If someone asked me what country helped us win the war, I would have said France, I think. And now I'm a full-on Revolutionary War geek, and I absolutely love it. That's what we're all about here on How We Got Here, creating more geeks. Libby's a lawyer turned creative writer. She says the more she learned about history, the more she just had to research and discover. So it's really been neat and it's, I feel like it's helped my patriotism and my understanding of the country and even my love for America of learning more about our founding fathers and what they really went through and how bleak things were at the time of Susanna Bowling. I just had no idea what guts these people had and how they risked everything, their home, their livelihood, their families, their necks. It's just incredible what they did and that they persevered for years against the greatest military power in the world, all over some taxes. I mean, I just don't think that we as Americans have that kind of resolve anymore. Susanna Bowling certainly had that resolve. So let's dive in. It was late May. 1781. British General Charles Cornwallis was determined to stamp out the American Rebellion. He claimed victory after a bloody battle in North Carolina, but lost nearly half of his army. He was very frustrated with the North Carolinians. 
he was told that everyone in the South was very docile and they were very loyalist. And these Tar Heel women were amazing. They were cutting supply lines. They were fierce. And Cornwallis could not stand the weather down there because it was summer in North Carolina. One of my favorite quotes from Cornwallis is, I'd rather go to hell than go back to the Carolinas. Personally, I love North Carolina, but we all know summers in the South can be brutal. Cornwallis was being told by the highest British general to stay in North Carolina, but he disobeyed orders. Packed up his, his men, left the wounded behind to fend for themselves, and marched to Virginia. So no one knew he was coming. He marched them all night, all day, for days to get there. And that's where Susanna comes in. Susanna Bowling was on her beautiful plantation on the Appomattox River with her mother. Her brothers were off fighting in the Revolutionary War. General Cornwallis showed up with his entire British Southern Army to quarter there overnight. Her family's plantation was in City Point, modern-day Hopewell. So they were completely taken by surprise. And that night, as she was serving dinner to them, she overheard their plans, and of course, they didn't worry about talking in front of her because she was just a stupid, silly girl. And they talked about how they were going to capture the boy the next morning. And the boy was what the British called Lafayette. The Marquis de Lafayette, the famous Frenchman who's helping steer the American Revolution towards independence. We told you all about him in episode two, but at this time, he's a valuable target for the British. So well-known, even 16-year-old Susanna knows who he is and recognizes the British plot to take his life. She overheard that, and she ended up sneaking out of her house. They had a secret underground tunnel that was originally built in the house to protect from Indian attacks. So she snuck out there to the dock, canoed across the Appomattox River in the pitch dark by herself, (laughs) grabbed a neighbor's horse, and rode by moonlight to the halfway house in Chesterfield, which is still in operation today. It's now a restaurant. It's a fantastic restaurant. It's still the original building, the original outdoor kitchen. Best um, crab cake I've ever had in my life. Hold on, hold on. I'm from Maryland. I'll be the judge of crab cakes around here. (laughs) Anyway, Susanna arrived to the halfway house in the middle of the night to find the Marquis and his men. Libby says the limited research doesn't say if Susanna talked directly to Lafayette or if his men just passed on her intelligence. But it's very possible the information saved his life. She knew she couldn't stay at the halfway house because Cornwallis and his army would arrive in the morning. So she saved her own life. She hit the road. As I did the research, I realized, holy cow, she had to come all the way back because that was the only road that connected Petersburg and Richmond. So if she didn't make her way back, she was going to run into them in the morning. I just was blown away by her courage, physical endurance and emotional endurance to be able to pull that off as a 16-year-old girl. And this was no leisurely gallop across a field. It was a trek in the middle of the night. Basically, she had to ride 10 miles on the horse there and she had to return. When you go to the side of the house, it's on Mansion Hill Drive, now in Hopewell, 
And you can see that if she had canoed directly across, she would have ended up in marshland. So she would have had to have gone downriver to land. And it was a good thing Susanna made this heroic journey. The next morning, General Cornwallis arrived to find Lafayette had escaped. That's when he sent Colonel Tarleton and his band of brigadiers over to Monticello, and that was the Jack Jewett ride. So the Jack Jewett ride was just a few days after Susanna. If not for Susanna, I like to say we'd be speaking with a British accent today. Bloody hell, my British accent is total rubbish. (laughs) But we're Americans, thanks to Susanna. Her incredible story is so little known in American history and deserves more recognition. So Libby went to Virginia lawmakers to do something about it. I had the idea of having her birthday made Susanna Bowling Day. So I drafted up a resolution and I submitted it to the delegate at Hopewell. Can you believe it? The General Assembly unanimously approved it. The fact that there was anything that was unanimous last year is pretty impressive. It's just incredible that December 5th is Susanna Bowling Day forevermore in Virginia. Paul Revere, Jack Jewett, Susanna Bowling. The British were coming, but the bad news for the Redcoats? American heroes come in many forms, including an underestimated 16-year-old girl. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. We still remember Pearl Harbor, the battle cry of 1941. And President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's historic speech to Congress lifts Americans from the smoke and ashes head on into World War II. Nearly 80 years later, we all still stop to reflect on that dark day when America was attacked on its own soil. It was 7.55 a.m. American soldiers were asleep in their bunks. When more than 300 Japanese planes attack the heart of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, airfields, shipyards, and battleship row. Pat Thompson was 10 years old and living in Navy housing near Pearl Harbor. So I was so used to the planes coming over from Hickam Field, and I was outside waving at them any time a plane came over such as it was that morning. I was outside waving at the Japanese planes, not knowing they weren't ours. The surprise attack was a merciless assault that came in two waves. 
After 30 minutes of relentless bombing, the Japanese aircraft returned at 8.50 a.m., blasting away again. In less than an hour, 12 ships sank or were beached in the attack. Nine additional vessels were damaged. More than 160 aircraft were destroyed and more than 150 others damaged. Rising from the smoke and chaos of this unexpected attack, American heroes, they fought back. It was just a tremendous amount of explosions, then the smoke, and a little later on, the fire on top of the water. Mal Middlesworth was a young Marine stationed aboard the USS San Francisco. Lynn Gardner from Fluvanna County, Virginia was 20 years old. He rushed to wake up his shipmates. Get up, get up, we're under attack. But of course, they didn't believe it. Uh, they were just waking up from my shaking them. Gardner says he started hauling ammunition to gunners to support the counter-strike. Uh, the gunner had a cigar in his mouth, and uh, we were loading semi-fixed ammunition. That's a, a shell and a bag of gunpowder. He was ramming this stuff into the breach with a, a lighted cigar in his mouth. Well, I never forgot that. He was assigned to the USS Reed, a destroyer that at the time of the attack was being repaired. Gardner says the ship's crew immediately took it into the fight. We didn't know what, was, what to expect out there. Whether the Japanese fleet was just waiting for us to exit the harbor or what. Uh, we didn't know there was uh, uh, troop ships, landing troops somewhere on the island. 19-year-old Jack Hammett was a Navy pharmacist. He accounted for the dead and comforted the dying. To see so much death and destruction in such a short period of time, uh, we always got what was left over after a battle, you know, no glory there. Everybody thinks about in terms of macro when they're thinking about Pearl Harbor, but we think in terms of micro. My job was those bodies. Everybody said, you're a hero. I, we're not heroes. The USS Oklahoma capsized. And when a Japanese bomb found the USS Arizona, the explosion killed 1,177 officers and crew. And the following day, before the fires were extinguished, a sleeping giant cloaked in red, white, and blue, was finally awake. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire.
the passage of decades does nothing to erase the vivid memories of that horrific morning for survivors like Bill Thornton. That was also my battle station. We stayed down in the, in the communication room for about three hours. And come when we came up topside, all the damage is terrible. Remember Pearl Harbor. Don't forget it. But time is knocking at the door of those who live through the attack. In 2018, the man celebrated as Pearl Harbor's oldest survivor, Ray Chavez, died at 106 years old. And two months ago, we lost Lauren Brunner, the second to last man to leave the sinking USS Arizona, one of only five members of the entire crew to survive. It wound up to be one hell of a day. He had reached his battle station when a powerful blast devastated the ship. He was wounded by enemy fire and suffered burns on more than 70% of his body. He spent eight months in the hospital before serving again on a Navy destroyer. Brunner will one day rejoin his fallen brothers of the Arizona when his remains are interred in the vessel beneath the Pacific. The survivors of that day, those who saw the devastation, lived through the fire and explosions, who watched helplessly as hundreds were entombed in an underwater grave. They worry, like Mal Middlesworth, that the legacy of that day will die with them. There's only about a half page in a history book about Pearl Harbor, and a half of that half page is a picture of the Arizona. So our youngsters don't understand what really happened. They don't understand that freedom isn't free. Freedom has a price. December 7, 1941, a day that will live in infamy took the lives of 2,400 Americans. Their sacrifice inspiring a generation of heroes that America will always need. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Special thanks to digital director Kate Albright, who can't ever seem to catch up I'm still episodes ahead of you. <laughs> She's going to hate that. And to executive producer Colton Weekly, who can swear like a sailor, but sure does write some of the loveliest lines I'll ever say. He didn't write that one. And thanks to our guests this week, Graham Woodleaf, Barbara Batson with the Library of Virginia, and the talented Miss Libby McNamee and her esteemed assistant, Zeke the Cat. We sure hope Spielberg comes calling. Shout out to WRVA Radio for those sounds from the 50s. And to all the real life heroes from Pearl Harbor. There aren't enough ways to say thank you. Next week on episode four. We know that he was taking his own pulse when he passed away. The shocking and torturous death of the nation's first president. 
the seven assaults were an absolute blood sacrifice. Plus something we haven't talked about before, winter warfare in the Civil War. Many people think that it's just a, a horrible slaughter rather than a battle. And the legacy of a black woman who changed the face of business in America. And she grew up in that first generation of freedom after slavery and went through all the struggles of reconstruction and, and all the, the hopes that were kind of dashed away during the Jim Crow era. That's next week on Episode 4. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.